why would I spend money on Google and Facebook when I can just airdrop or incentivize my users to be my best marketers? Like I can take a million dollars and spend it in Google or Facebook to promote a product, or I could just give a million dollars to my early users and turn those users, thousands of users into my best marketers. And now I have a team of thousands of people and because they own my token, they're incentivized for my company to succeed. So I've just actually created an outsource model for marketing where we, where this kind of community is invested in my success. And I think that is going to fundamentally change how you look at your marketing budget, how you spend money and how you actually go, go to market. You're listening to Paris Talks Marketing. My goal with this podcast is to dig deeper into digital marketing success than any other marketing podcast out there to reveal the growth marketing strategies and tactics that are working today, empowering growth at amazing companies and organizations. Keep listening as I interview founders, CEOs, and marketing leaders from all around the world, primarily from companies in the tech and software as a service industries. Now, on with the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of Paris Talks Marketing. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting with Kieran Flanagan, who is the SVP of marketing at HubSpot. Kieran has a proven track record in helping scale up businesses from startups to enterprise level to grow their traffic, their users, and their revenue. Kieran currently works as SVP of marketing at HubSpot, where he's helped the business grow internationally, moved to a product-led business, quadrupled their marketing demand, and built out their media team, including the acquisition of The Hustle. Kieran is also an active podcast host, an advisor, and an investor in early-stage companies. All right, Kieran, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Paris. Excited to be on. Great. Uh, I want to just kick off with a little bit of discussion around how your career has progressed. I think it's a very, very interesting journey. Uh, you've been you've been for quite a while with HubSpot. It looks like maybe around six six plus years. Is that is that about right? Uh, I think it's like eight. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. It's been eight. No, years. it's it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. A long time. More, more more than I had spent in any other company. Yeah. So what are, what are you as a SVP of marketing now? What what is your entire scope of responsibility at HubSpot? Uh, yeah, it kind of breaks apart into a couple of things, and so. Um, HubSpot are above a billion dollars in ARR now. And so I think that's somewhat rarefied air for a SaaS company. What's somewhat unique about HubSpot is the way we did it. And so um, most of the revenue that we generate is actually dependent upon market and source demand. So we don't hit our revenue numbers unless market and hit their numbers. And so that means we need to be really uh, focused on customer acquisition uh, globally, need to do a lot of things to scale and generate that demand. And so one of my groups is the customer acquisition team who kind of generate all, all of that demand for HubSpot that turn into, into our customers. Uh, we have another group, uh, which is uh, one I'm really excited about. I'm excited by all my groups, but uh, it's, it's somewhat new in that we're building out a, a real media company within HubSpot. We bought the acquisition. We have a team now of about 70 plus people really building out a business media network. Uh, just hired Jordan DiPietro, who coming to us from thefool.com, Motley Fool. Um, built, he helped build out their business. And so we're really excited by that. Really excited for Jordan to join. Hustle acquisition has gone great. I think that has been an exciting thing. And then the other thing that we're really excited about is uh, we have, uh, you know, education is at the heart of what HubSpot does. 
you know, part of what we really do is help people uh, have better careers in software and education is part of how we do that. So we have a large academy uh, that people love. We have a large community. Uh, we credential a lot of thousands and thousands of people each and every year. And so we have all of these kind of teams that do that. Uh, and one of the things we're trying to do is build that into a more cohesive experience. We have this network group and all those teams will uh, belong in, in a network group. And really, we are trying to combine that in a logical and cohesive way where you can have a membership profile, you can have a membership directory where you can find people who have similar skills to you, uh, help forge better connections and help you get a better career through better education, better community, better connection with peers. And so that's our network group. You can go to network.hustle.com, claim your profile today. That's a minimal viable version. So it's version one. So uh, apologies if there's bugs, but they're really the kind of three core groups that I'm managing uh, right now. And so my time in HubSpot really has uh, been been super interesting because really every kind of two something years, I kind of change missions. Um, uh, and I think that's why I find it so kind of exciting to still be there. Yeah, that's awesome. I also noticed that as of, according to your LinkedIn profile, as of maybe about three months ago, you have you've started uh, in an advisory role with Sequoia. Is that right? Uh, I'm actually uh, uh, an, on their Skype program. Oh, okay. So yeah, their Skype program. Yeah. So like um, one of the things I've loved, uh, loved doing over really the past 12 to 18 months is uh, angel investing in companies that I'm excited about. So I get to work with founders, try to help them invest a little bit of money um, and just watch their growth. And that, that is really interesting to me because I get to see all of the challenges that companies have as they go through that pre-seed, seed, series A, series B. Uh, if I can be in any way helpful, I do that, pro- Provide interview, help interview their heads of marketing, help them set up strategies, things like that. And uh, I was fortunate enough, Sequoia are a company that, you know, when I was coming into tech, it would be always one of those companies that I would be, wow, like, what an amazing company that is. Look at the investments, look at the people they have connected to them. It just must be an amazing um, thing to be connected to Sequoia in any meaningful way. And so it's really a dream of mine to be um, kind of associated with Sequoia through the Scout program. And so Sequoia has a Scout program where people um, can kind of invest uh, uh, and Sequoia is supportive of those investments and um, help kind of expand the the footprint of, of Sequoia. And uh, one of the things Sequoia has recently done is uh, made a more concerted effort to, or made a, they're made a more concerted uh, effort to be more present in the European market. So they've opened up an office in London. They've already have a large footprint within Europe, but they're starting to see that um, expand. And I'm excited to be even a, a tiny part of that. That's great. And as part of that role, I suppose you're probably get you're meeting with teams, and I know that the early stage journey is pre-seed and seed and Series A. I also noticed that in maybe a few weeks back, there was a LinkedIn post from you that mentioned the the pursuit of this so-called A plus team, and it was in reference to uh, r- right around the Series A milestone. And I mean, this mar- this uh, VC SaaS market is frothing so much right now, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you've probably you've built you've built your own teams and you've met with teams. And um, can you describe to us what is, in your opinion, what is at the at a Series A for a typical SaaS company? What does an A plus marketing team look like? Yeah, I think the. 
you know, I think all great marketing teams are somewhat broken into three areas. Um, they're able to figure out how to reverse engineer the number they need to generate each and every month or each and every quarter and map that against things they can test and iterate on to, to generate that uh, demand. So they're able to like take problems, uh, put those, uh, break those problems down into like uh, subtopics and then be able to iterate on those things to find ways to, to scale towards their needs. So one of the things I always tell companies is you want to kind of grow into your problems. And so a lot of the times, because we were kind of uh, over saturated with content on how to grow businesses, like we, everyone, there's a, just a case study for every single business on the planet at this point on how they grew their business. And it can feel overwhelming and you can start to want to take on problems that you don't yet have. So you can want to take on the problem of how do I build a really sustainable content marketing strategy or how do I build uh, this really great SEO strategy? And when you're in the kind of seed series A, you may not need to take on those problems because the way that you can grow customers, you may be able to do that in a very kind of more niche, unscalable way, but works for you within that stage. And so I think if you break a marketing teams, there's like people who are really great at at solving that problem. How do I take the thing that I need to be great at this quarter, this year to hit my demand goals uh, and, and start to iterate and make that successful. Then you have people who can actually help position your product in the market in, in a way that it's differentiated or in a way that leans into the thing that you're better at than uh, other competitors. And so every product you want to be in some way differentiated or in some way provide something better. So like when I talk to founders uh, and particularly I talk to a lot of PLG founders, product-led growth uh, founders who want to kind of implement that motion. And mm -hmm. it's even more prevalent there because you want to figure out what is your Trojan horse. And so what I mean by what is your Trojan horse is like, what is the one feature you're going to put into the free version of that product? What is the one feature you want your product marketing to kind of lean into that is differentiated or better than your competitors? And it's the thing that the users are not going to be able to live without. They're going to be like, oh, this is the thing that I just... I don't really care about all these other features, but this is the feature. If you took it away from me, I would be really, really unhappy. Uh, I think that's really important. And then the other function is like brand um, and just how can you be relevant within your market? How can you tell stories? You see this a lot in Web3 where you're starting to see the kind of feeling you have towards a company. It, it becomes a reason that company accelerates and grows so much faster and you build these kind of mini tribes uh, around your business. And I think that's what great brand marketing does. And so you have customer acquisition, brand, product marketing, and then you have someone who can back basically put people in those spots and make those teams work together, like the operational part of that. And so series A companies, I think you pick which parts of those are most important to you. Um, if you're a product-led company and you have a lot of product virality, you may start to invest in product acquisition and brand much more than you invest in customer acquisition because customer acquisition isn't an issue for you because you have this product virality motion uh, and lots of users being acquired each and every month. Uh, I think the kind of, just to, I know I'm going along here, but I think the kind of, you know, A plus, I, the, there is not that many people in the world who are like A plus marketers. Um, like by definition, A plus should be a small niche group. They do exist. They have outsized impact. But I think it's more important you hire someone in a marketing leader role who can build an A-plus culture. And maybe that person needs to be A-plus. But I think building an A-plus culture where people can come in and learn and over time become A-plus marketers for your company is really, really important. Mm -hmm. And about, about how many people 
at a Series A for typical SaaS company, about how many people are in a marketing team at that stage approximately? Or does uh, I it think vary? like 10, 5, 10 people. Okay. It does vary. I've seen that varies, again, quite a bit. Like if you're a lot of the PLG companies invest in marketing later because they somewhat have uh, the product acquiring users for the product. And so they invest a lot in um, product engineering. Maybe they have some engineers working in the product growth team, obsessing over activation, monetization, uh, things like that. And they start to think about marketing, really their first hire, even a C-stage company, your first hire. And I think it's a good first hire is like a product marketer who can really start to think about how do I message the product on the website if I'm an inside sales model with my uh, sales collateral, if I'm a PLG model but on the, in the website and within, within my onboarding flows. Um, and so it does look different, I think, dependent upon the, the go-to-market, but I think five to 10 people in a series A mm-hmm. uh, is somewhat typical in terms of what I've seen. Yeah. You mentioned a whole lot there. I'd like to start to focus more now on product, product-led growth. I think that's also the area that you're most passionate about. And there's a concept that, that you've also referred to often called the time to immediate value. And this is, to, to me, this is very interesting. And you mentioned earlier the concept of, of a Trojan horse, which is making that very important decision about what is that, what is that killer feature that is going to be in the free version. Um, I want to I ask you about this concept of time to value, time to immediate value. Um, can you just describe what you mean by that and why it's so important for PLG? Yeah, I think there when you're building a freemium, when you're building a PLG motion, there's a couple of things that really matter. I think um, I, one of the things, and I'll, I, it's related to this, so I'll discuss it really quickly first. Is there's a like what I call a freemium tightrope, where you're continually working the tightrope in terms of bringing enough of your because you want to bring the you bring the core user value into free, right? You want to try to build whatever your core user value is that you're, you're creating for your audience, you try to build, bring some of that into free and give it away uh, to get people really excited by that. And you kind of walk this tightrope where you don't want to give enough of that value away, where you can't monetize to pay. And I think Evernote is a good example of that for years. They really struggled to figure out how to get their users to upgrade to pay because it gives so much of the core user value away in free. But you want to give enough of it away that it will be an acquisition lever, right? A lot of PLG companies, what they do is they make the free version of the tool not that meaningful. So it's not really a, it's not really anything. It's not really a, a lever to grow top of the funnel because it doesn't provide enough value. It doesn't give the user enough of a kind of feel for how the product could really help them. So it's not even a great free trial experience. And so they end up in, in kind of no man's land. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I think so. I think that's the first part is that balance. The time to immediate value is really important to build that kind of flywheel in terms of users coming in, gaining value, becoming active, and then sharing that with their colleagues in some sort of way. And we can talk about the mechanics of how they do that. And so, time to value is how long does it take you to experience the core value of the product? Um, and usually that's your activation metric, right? Like this is the core value. When you actually do this, you become an active user and we start to look to see if you're a weekly active user or weekly active teams or whatever it may be. And so the thing I talked about is that's a kind of known concept is like, what is the time to value? Like how long does it take you to get from the sign up to experience that value? And we, we measured that uh, a lot in the early days of building up the freemium products for HubSpot. The one that I talked about on LinkedIn was something I think is quite interesting in terms of companies who grow exponentially 
is the time to immediate value for invited users. And so actually what happens in PLG motions and doesn't get discussed as much is a lot of their growth comes from like me sharing the product with you or me inviting you into the product uh, because I need you to come into the product to make it valuable to me, right? It's a, it's a team multiplayer game versus a single player game. But even if it's a single player game like a Loom, right? A single player game, you can still get invited into the product in, in different ways. You're, mm-hmm. If you're an invited user, your sign-up path is not like my sign-up path. You didn't actually choose to use that product. You're getting invited. And so you, the way you're signing up to use that product is different from someone who kind of went out, searched for it, and decided to actually start using it. And so companies like Miro uh, and Calendly are pretty... Uh, exceptional in that if i invite you to a mirror board um you can start using that mirror board without ever signing up right you can actually start to drag and drop and do things in mirror without ever having to sign up so you as an invited user get immediate value without having to go through a sign up process without having to try to figure out an onboard in and m- m- most plt companies what you'll find is the activation rate for inv- invited users is a lot lower than for the users who actually originally signed up for the product. But in the case of companies that grow exponentially, their invited users get immediate value from that product as soon as it's shared with them by other users. And I think that's really important. And it's why some of the co- those kind of companies grow much, much faster than even just the average PLG company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that does make sense. And to, to some degree, it has to do with the product itself, that there's a natural... A natural mm. virality. I'm thinking of also right. Fireflies. The, we use Fireflies as a transcription bot. There's a lot of those out there now. But there's a, there's always someone else implied. When it, when anyone uses that, you have to announce it at the start of the call, which is a, like a natural way really to promote um, and refer that product out. And Cal- Calendly is the same way. Miro yeah. is the same way with this really heavy collaborative use. Um and and you you talk about this single single player versus multi multiplayer and um, and also the fact that I think that finding that threshold that you mentioned that a company like Evernote maybe went too far gave away too much but I think now that the upgrade levers are around more like usage and seats as opposed to features feature upgrades right. so that would that would allow a product led growth company to be a little more generous on features on feature giveaway and a freemium. But then just restrict that wall, or you know, set set that ceiling on a user basis, and then go after this land and expand approach, where you're a single user. Here you go, go nuts, have it for free forever. Um, but then once you go and invite your colleagues, then when you get to five users or ten users, that's when you're going to uh, start upgrading. And I see that that pricing model now really <laughs> starting to to be uh, the pervasive model for PLG. Yeah. So, so I think I think it's interesting. The single to multiplayer it creates the best delineation between what's free and what's paid. Um, but there's but but let me give you an example of a company that doesn't have that that does really well, and give you an example of why that is also problematic. So, that's the most common um, pricing model that I've that 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 we see kind of in the PLG space is that okay, well you're a single player, you're using single player mode, you can use that, go nuts as you say, one seat free, get all features, do what you want. That's incredibly good uh, because it creates a lot of value for your your uh, single users who spread it with other single users. So it's really good for that um, land, like land more people within your ecosystem. The trouble it does create is your incentives. There's incentives mismatched in that the person who's using the single player mode and what they get in the multiplayer mode is actually not things that they care about, right? Maybe additional security, like all of these things that are for a company, not an individual. 
Mm-hmm. And so you have all of these people within the company who are using your product in single player mode, but they don't really have the incentive to go try to get the company to buy the multiplayer mode. And so you still end up with this model where there's, you're still having to sell into the company through an inside sales model. And what you kind of do is you look for, hey, there's X number of users in here using it in a meaningful way, rotate that lead to my sales team. And it gives me a better, hey, don't you know this many people are are using the product? Do you want to buy the team version? Here's what in it. But nearly every, I went through a period where I talked to about five, 10 PLG companies within a given month and every single one of them were trying to solve that problem. Now there are mm-hmm. cases where, software companies can just have single player mode into single player mode, like paid single player mode. So Bloom is a really good example where mm. it's like you pay for individual features. Like you can pay for team yeah. features, but you actually also have to pay for individual features. Now I know they went through a period of time where you could actually record like their core value. If you think what's, what's their core value, it's being able to record the video uh, and the person on the other end, getting that video is, uh, and making it easier for them to consume information. And there was a period of time where they, give that value away for free. You could record videos uh, and have unlimited time and just record them, give them mm-hmm. away. And they try to monetize on team features. Recently, they actually started to monetize single player mode. So you actually could only record X number of minutes for free. And then you had to upgrade, mm-hmm. even if you're in single player mode to record longer videos. And I think that's an interesting example where, you know, I wonder if they saw that the core value they were given away meant again, that it was hard to monetize a lot of those single players uh, with the core value you just get for free. Uh, and I think they're starting to monetize that, which is smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're heavy users of, of Loom. And uh, I was actually just approached recently by probably an account executive there to add uh, people in our company to our workspace to, to create a team because they had seen all these single player uses of yeah. the free version that were floating out there, but we weren't really united as a team. And of course, that that requires an upgrade. So that was, I mean, that was actually pretty good. I have noticed that Loom went from being, you know, practically unlimited recording time to uh, to putting some limits on it. Exactly. So they did yeah. monetize. They did monetize single player. Yeah. And really, what we do now is we figure out there's probably four or five people in our agency that need a paid Loom account, and everybody else should just be on the free plan and, and use it that way. And we're yeah, just selectively the- bringing in people into the paid team yeah. space. And that's the messy part of land and expand. And actually what companies try to figure out is you end up with a ton of people within companies and teams using your product in a really scattered way and that they don't know this team is using it. They don't know this person is using it. And actually the company, what they have to do is try to wrangle, find ways to like let you know that's happening and show you can wrangle them all together on a, on a team plan. And it's more efficient if you do that. And so you'll mm-hmm. see things like emails come from parallel companies where they're like, hey, here's your status updates, X number of users using it and try to... But what they're trying to do is find out who is the actual decision maker, like who is the person that can actually buy this uh, team plan. So you still have to navigate the company in, in a similar way you would have had to done uh, in an outbound way. But the advantage you have is you have way more context and you already have some people in the product who love your company. So it's just much easier to sell. Yeah. I mean, they, this this person reached out and said, these are all, you have, I don't know, 25 active users and, and some of them are extremely active. So Having those statistics uh, really helps. Yeah, let's put all let's put all of this now in the context of of um, of HubSpot's marketing because you you all are um, I think one of the trailblazers of product led growth, uh, especially when you launched the free CRM a few years back. Um, to what extent do you all have what is your what is HubSpot's Trojan horse, which is that that killer feature that really hooks people pretty fairly immediately and then 
and then try, tries to push them to introduce it and invite other people in in their organization. Yeah, I think it's more complex for us now because we have such a full front office platform. And so we have multiple personas using that platform. And so like what a marketer finds as that single use case versus a salesperson versus a rev ops versus customer success are going to be somewhat different. Um, mm-hmm. We're not like a single point solution. I think in the CRM and just in terms of something that a feature that does map to all those individuals is the contact record. And so you get full because HubSpot has this kind of crafted all-in-one platform. So it's not like cobbled together through all of these different tools that are trying to share data across each other. When you actually use the con, when you actually see the contact record, you have the full um, view of everything that contact has done across your marketing sales, customer success, like just across every mm-hmm. touch point that full you have. For that. Yeah. And it just creates a much better, it allows you to create a much more meaningful and better customer experience. And that to me is the aha part that that happens with most people is like, oh, geez, I, you know, I'm trying to spend, I have multiple people trying to get this data syncing across all these different tools to do any kind of meaningful things with that, with the customer contact record. And then HubSpot, you're like, well, I get every single touch point and I can build automation flows and all these different things uh, across it. So I think for us, that is kind of one of the eureka moments. Mm-hmm. And what is the time to that value? I mean, do you measure do you measure a milestone and say, bingo, that's the light bulb, that's the aha moment, and it, it's about this number of hours, days, or whatever? Yeah, I think there's leading indicators to actually caring about the contact record. So I think there's time to generate lead, time to generate deal. Like it's things that mm-hmm. you do that will get uh, added against that contact records, like touch points. Uh, one of the things we used to look at a lot in the CRM is time to um, mark your first deal done. And so we could see that the sooner that a company had actually closed the deal, the more they would actually um, uh, retain or become more active, more engaged and actually upgrade. So the upgrade rate, the retention rate and their mm-hmm. activation rate all went up. And it's pretty logical because, oh, I've gone in, I've closed the deal. I can see all of that against the contact record and that process is really seamless. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one of the core of, the first kind of value props that we used to look at to see like yeah. time to close deal. Close deal, make right? That, okay. Yeah, not, we, not created, but closed. Yeah. Yeah. And can we make that? Uh, well, yeah. So we looked at created, we actually can't influence closed. We did look at created uh, time to create deal, but we just, we used to look at average time to close deal as well. Like we do mm-hmm. see that companies who close deals on average faster are just more uh, successful in terms of, um, activation upgrade and things like that, which again, mm-hmm. still makes sense because if you're closing deals in a more rapid way, you're actually getting, um, you know, more recurrent touch points with the platform. Yeah. And these signals, these engagement signals, like closing a deal. And one thing I'll mention there is I think there's, there's even just a psychological aspect of that. That's a win. I mean, psychologically, that's a win for that salesperson. So right. you have the association that they're in a great state of mind. They just want a deal that it means probably some commission for them. And, uh, and a new a new customer for their for their organization, and I think there's some associated value uh, with with that platform that you know that you actually are ticking that box and notching that victory. Um, but as you look at these milestones and and you think about these these aha moments, are you are you incorporating any of these signals back into your acquisition marketing, partic- particularly the paid acquisition marketing? And what I mean by that is. Are you are even say training Google paid search to go after acquisition and, and even conversion events of these types as opposed to just simply somebody that uh, that just simply that signs up? 
Uh, we have lots of different ways that we kind of build and segment our, our audience in through paid advertising. So we did do uh, that. We, uh, when we were scaling freemium, we would look at people who were net new people who had visited the website, people who were active users, people who were active users, but hadn't been active in, I think 14 days or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so we would split the lists, um, and we could build look like audiences of those on Facebook and do things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have done that. Uh, we have done, we have like segment, segmented our list in lots of ways. It is somewhat harder in terms of like being very uh, prescriptive on how you kind of go, okay, well, they did this action. I'm going to target those people. It's not as easy to do that through, through paid, but mm-hmm. we did try to like split, um, split it across the product led funnel, the lookalike audiences for those different people. We target people, mm-hmm. Uh, do things like that. Do I think it was like really, really impactful? I'm not sure if like mm-hmm. we target people and paid to try to improve their activation or things like that. Is that, is, is that um, impactful? I think the number, when you actually get the numbers of like number of people who, who are active versus number of people who click on the ad versus number of people who go back and sign in and do an action, mm-hmm. that funnel is pretty leaky. And so it's hard yeah. to make, make a real impact. Yeah. What, what I'm really curious is, is if, if there is a, a set of actions or signals, particularly that happen in the first, say, 24 to 48 hours after sign up, because you want that, you want those signals to be as close as possible to the conversion event um, so that you can try to weed out people that are bound to churn. And is there, is there a set of events that are good at predicting lifetime value within, say, 24, 48 hours after sign up? I think it's so. I think this again. This is one of the early exercises we did, which is we took our our customers, um, sorted them by best, uh, sorted them by um, most valuable to HubSpot, like best LTV mm-hmm. um, and uh, best upgrade rates. I'm just trying to recall now because this was some time ago. And then we mm-hmm. reverse engineered and we looked at their usage patterns within the first, I think, seven days, fourteen days, and then started to look at what were the key features that they used within those. Within, within those cohorts of time. Mm-hmm. And so we did see that there was commonalities in the um, features that someone would use within the first kind of, I think it was seven days that would mm-hmm. suggest they would over time become a more active user and upgrade and then become more valuable to HubSpot. And, and so then, you know, one of the things we used to try then was integrate those into the onboarding flow. The only thing about that that was always somewhat, tricky and maybe there's there's probably people who who have really good input in this i should be interested in it is um then you start to say well those usage patterns are the things that are better predictors of better customers so i'll integrate them in my own board and flow but then you're kind of diluting you're kind of you're, you're kind of what's the right word you're kind of manufacturing people to use those mm-hmm. features so yeah. you don't know if that if that data is going to hold Right. If I said to you, like, oh, the best, um, you know, the best feature for HubSpot is someone to uh, use our chat tool, right? Like that. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the number one thing. If someone uses our chat tool, tool, a better activation upgrade, monetization. Okay. Well, what I'll do is in the first onboarding flow is I'll try to get you integrate to use the chat flow. I'll try to get you to mm-hmm. adopt it and use it really yeah. fast. But now I've kind of changed the the parameters because now I'm. Mm-hmm. You're oh, pushing. I, yeah, I'm pushing people I towards. I think the term that. is self-fulfilling prophecy, maybe, right? Because you're actually for- forcing something um, ra- rather than uh, letting it happen naturally. You're forcing it to happen. So but I guess what the, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to take a you have to. So I I still think it's the right thing to do and experiment with, but you have to, mm-hmm. you have to be sure that you take a cut of the data after you've kind of uh, changed the onboarding flow to 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 those things. You see if that yeah. data holds true, and a lot of times it it doesn't hold yeah. as true. Yeah, and what I think what we're, we're trying to do now to approach this is a, just to use machine learning on data sets to try to just really understand which combinations of things uh, correlate most strongly with LTV and then actually come up with a predicted LTV as soon as possible after acquisition. Um, Seven days is probably, it's probably doable, but then you're just going to bring more of a lag of data into a platform like Google ads, because it's going to need those seven days to, to learn, but, but then eventually it will learn and it's AI is going to learn and catch up. But, uh, then comes the question, I think you alluded to this, which is that correlation doesn't always mean causation. Right. So, right. you know, maybe maybe if someone, let's say someone imports contacts and you want them to do that immediately, I mean, that's that's a great time to value thing. Or they build a, they build a really quick and easy chatbot or, um, not, not a, or a chat experience, but whatever that might be, um, if it's... Um, uh, what we're what we're trying to do is is to say now that that is going to have some kind of a predicted lifetime value to it of X, and that allows you to to pivot in Google Ads, for example, from a target CPA bid where you bid the same amount for every user regardless of any other factors versus a value based bid where you say we're gonna we're gonna actually bid target ROAS against uh, this, this number predicted lifetime value, which is what the machine learning model spits out based on what they actually do in the first 24 hours or 48 hours, or even how many times they log in, it could also be about frequency or habitual yeah, yeah. use, yeah. Uh, not just feature use. Um, but I think this is the future of moving towards first party data, which is the big buzz now um, when you can't rely and soon we won't be able to rely on third party cookies um, right. to, to do all the heavy lifting. We're really going to have to collect data, a lot more data from our customers at the time of acquisition, maybe even asking them questions um, like, I don't know, what, what is the CRM you're migrating from? About how many contacts do you have? Uh, what industry are you in? And marketers now seem to be still resisting a lot of this friction because they consider it friction that that's going to kill conversion rates. But in the test that we're running now, asking the right types of questions not only uh, keeps conversion rates the way they are, but even even improves them because the users believe that they're getting, they will get a more personalized custom experience with the product. And then you, t- you take that first party data and you use that, you model it to, to improve the conversion event itself. And then ultimately you can do a value-based bid on it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Just wondering if you all are moving in that direction with HubSpot, since you have mountains of data, I assume. Uh, so we, we have done a lot of tests and in terms of intuitive ways to gather data, um, I don't think we've seen what you've seen in that we do see, and we've done a lot of like uh, hundreds of tests. And I think that anytime we add additional questions, we see conversion rates get worse. Now that doesn't mm-hmm. really like, it doesn't really matter what happens with the conversion rates. It really only happen, matters what happens with a total revenue because yeah. you could have less people, but you could have higher amount of yeah, revenue. Yeah. And they would have churned anyway, or yeah, you're just yeah. reading out low quality through that. Um, but in ge- in in general, we you, you, the more data you ask for, uh, it has had an, it does have somewhat of a negative impact on on uh, revenue. But I do think there's smart ways that again coming back to product led growth and why I think it's somewhat of a good business model. 
long term for for data is that, uh, and I don't want to get into like data privacy laws because I'm not the right person to to be accurate in those things. But I know that if you sign up as a user for a free app, it's very different from you sign up to become a lead on um, the data you can capture on someone and the way you can use that data. And also mm-hmm. in the if you build the onboarding flow uh, for your for your product in a way what you which kind of you just uh, suggested is it doesn't feel like you're being asked questions it feels like you're being asked to tailor the uh, product experience to your needs mm-hmm. um, and so you can have like the first sign up event be uh, just a username and a password and then you can get into an app and then it can say hey like now if you add this details let me customize this part for you and hey let me mm-hmm. And then you, it's part of the onboarding flow to customize the app to their needs. And so you're still getting the data yeah. that you need and you can use. And then I think the other thing you said is like using the engagement data, again, PLG, you should have better engagement data um, and be able to use that engagement data to better target users and better understand how much you can pay for a user and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to I wanna shift over to, to another topic that, uh, I, I also caught in your last newsletter, which is this concept of web 3.0 marketing. Mm. And um, so let me just, let me provide an overview, overview of, of this. And you tell me um, if, if I'm off track a little bit, but, um, and this has to do with, um, let me just, just pull this up. I mean, a lot of it has to do with concepts around decentralized content, play to earn content and creative creating new ways of incentivizing people for referrals that's beyond a classic affiliate model, including things like building community. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things to unpack around this, but can you just briefly describe your vision of web 3.0? Yeah. And uh, people listening, if they're really deep into web three and I, I am, but I'm a, I, I consider myself a learner. So if anything I say is wrong, uh, it feel free to correct me on Twitter because I am also still learning uh, I think Web3 is fascinating. I try to spend most of my time outside of my, my day role in Web3. The, the, th- the things I've, and I've kind of evolved my thinking a little bit, even since posting that LinkedIn ad, there's a couple of things that I think are super interesting about Web3 companies and how they're going to scale and grow. I think PLG is huge. Is like PLG, PLG just becomes even more impactful in the Web3 space. Like most companies are going to be product first, um, user first land and expand uh, any web three company i talk to like every single company is like web three i have talked to some who have inside sales teams but they're actually quite rare the uh so i think plg and i think plg actually is going to be i think you're going to need a new type of analytics to like figure out the plg motion like in the same way that web two companies when they went plg had companies like Anal- uh, amplitude and all these different analytics platforms i actually i maybe they maybe they map to web three but i think there's a whole new way of looking at data on Web3. Um, I think media, I think brand and product positioning are huge for Web3 because it's so nascent and it's so hard to understand that actually the way you position your products uh, and the way that you can create a brand for your products are going to be really uh, impact, even more impactful on Web3 than they are in Web2, where Web2 is very well understood. A lot of spaces are competitive. Everyone's brand and things kind of look kind of similar. People kind of understand what the products do. Web3, that's not the case. Like people are still trying to understand not even what the product does, but like what is the problem it solves? And then that problem itself, it's like hard to wrap your head around. Mm-hmm. And I think product position and brand, you're going to see a lot of those marketing yeah. teams skew towards creative. I think... Um, Community it led like that. Community led is an accelerant for everything in Web three, and so the 
the thing that is going to completely change everything is why would I spend money on Google and Facebook when I can just airdrop or incentivize my users to be my best marketers? Like I can take a million dollars and spend it in Google or Facebook to promote a product, or I can just give a million dollars to my early users and turn those users, thousands of users into my best marketers. And now I have a team of thousands of people and because they own my token, they're incentivized for my company to succeed. So I've just actually created an outsource model for marketing where we, where this kind of community is invested in my success. And I think that is going to fundamentally change how you look at your marketing budget, how you spend money and how you actually go, go to market. Um, I'll, st- I'll pause there. I have, I have a lot more, but yeah, I, I, I didn't get into the play. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that this is, this is an exciting evolution of affiliate, affiliate marketing or, or, um, even even there's a kind of an influencer marketing spin on this too, but but it's um, it is fascinating if you can tokenize these incentives and allow people actually give people an upside that if you're going to bring me if you're going to bring me ten new customers, you know here's here's your upside. If you bring me a hundred, it's exponential. Um, and yeah, if but, you can but it's not even that they need to do like that. I, I actually don't see it. I think there is a, a case that, that it changes the way you do affiliate market, but I don't think it's a case where you get paid out on the, uh, I, I don't think you just have to get paid on the number of users that you acquire. Like, Hey, you bring me 10, like basically it centralized mm-hmm. referrals. I think it's like, if we make this brand more successful, like you own. Yeah. You actually have equity. And, Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have equity in the company. That's the part that I am excited by. That's the part that, like, again, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I just spend a million dollars giving a thousand people equity in the company through my token, mm-hmm. and those people can see the value they bought into the brand product positioning, and then they actually want to see the company ten x. They want to mm-hmm. see a ten x because then they get ten x the value. Now yeah. I've created a whole army of marketers who can create content for me. You can be in my community, mm-hmm. give me feedback. Like that is. I think that is the part that is going to be really disruptive in terms of how we do marketing. Yeah. And I think what you're alluding here too is, is uh, I'm going to, I'm going to connect this hopefully to um, something that came that, that you wrote around late April um, in the newsletter, which is the four eras of B2B marketing. Right. And you, you discussed, so I'm going to focus on, on inbound and then, and then the, and then what comes next, because um, HubSpot really pioneered the whole concept of inbound marketing. But what you suggest here is that, Inbound marketing, which is focused a lot around education, it still has its limits. And to go beyond that is to create com- community and almost uh, become a, a quasi-media company, which I think is what you mentioned HubSpot is, is trying to do now at the beginning of the, of the podcast, is to, is to really try to not only educate, but also inform or, or even entertain people. I mean, create an experience that is going to build build a brand, not just simply educate and answer questions and move people down a funnel, but actually build build a brand where people are are actually enjoying the content, even entertained by it. Um, so, I've noticed. Uh, I just went into Google Trends and I and I I typed in inbound marketing, and I looked back since two thousand five, and this is an interesting thing to see because inbound marketing, the search demand or search popularity for the term inbound marketing was going up and up and up. It never even hardly blipped until from 2004 all the way until um, May or sorry, around, yeah, maybe April of 2020. So a little more than a year ago, it might be pandemic related too. But there is a noticeable drop in search demand for inbound marketing over the last year and a half. Um, and and it just it, that trend just changed in, uh, in April, 2020. And I think maybe this is part of it, which is that not that not that the 
that we're moving past this. I mean, inbound marketing is still extremely important, but there is there is a new frontier, I think. And what what you're what you're talking about is media. I mean, really investing much more heavily in creative and media experiences that are going to build uh, build the brand beyond um, educating people and, and yep. attracting them through inbound, inbound marketing. Yeah, the I, so I, I, I actually the. I have the perfect answer for that. So I was looking at this. The um, Here's the interesting thing about, again, coming back to your different or better. And so mm-hmm. different is the best place you can be because differentiated, you're going to grow faster. You're going to build a tribe faster. Like people better is, like you have lots of companies that are big companies, successful companies because they do better. Like, oh, we just do this thing better. And that happens a lot because technology evol- evolves. And so you, companies that are created today have a better chance of creating something Solving use case in a better way than companies were created 10 years ago because technology uh, just evolves. But differentiated is always the best companies because if you're differentiated, better tribe, create a category, do all those things. And so HubSpot was differentiated in in by marketing. The interesting thing about every differentiated company, if you win the differentiated, which is like transformational brand, like, oh, we have this transformational message in the market. Here's the reason that we believe the world is changing. Here's the reason that we believe this is the way to be successful. Uh, you don't believe us, you're that tribe, but here's our tribe. Mm-hmm. If you win that, if you win that argument and you win that space, everything transformational becomes best practice, right? But by, by its very nature, uh, because, oh, well, enough people start to believe it. Now everyone does inbound marketing. It's not differentiated. Like it, you mm-hmm. talk to any company, yo, we do inbound marketing, we do these different things. And so it just becomes part of how you actually, uh, you do marketing. And so you'll see the search demand start to drop because it's an understood thing. People now know how to do it. And not, not mm-hmm. that many people are like, oh, what's this inbound marketing thing? They're just looking to how, how do I do better content? How do I do different elements of it? And so every company at some point ends up in do like better versus differentiated because by its very nature, differentiated, like capitalism is efficient. Everything starts to copy that differentiated place because it's kind of winning that argument and then everything kind of settles into like okay well we used to be differentiated but now we can actually uh, do this thing Mm -hmm. better and i think companies are trying to continually find us curves like hubspot has is like okay what's our next point of differentiation because i think the differentiation part is always a good spot to to win in but i think that's inbound marketing is the perfect like if you look at any trend for differentiated it kind of goes up uh, you have like laggards and then it goes up, it becomes popularized and then it comes back, mm-hmm. it comes down and it's like, oh, well, it's become best practice. Yeah. It's not really the new shining thing, shiny thing anymore. Yeah. It's pervasively understood and practiced uh, yeah. and no, no longer researched as a new concept uh, right. or as a newer type of a concept. Yeah. That, 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 that surely makes sense. Great. Well, th- this has been a lot of fun and, and, uh, we could, we could go on a lot more. I'm sure we, we touched on a lot of, of cool topics uh, was there anything, Kieran, that I didn't ask you that that you wanted me to ask, or is there anything else that you that you'd like for our audience to know? Uh, no, I, I think uh, I think we covered a lot. I hope it was um, I hope it was interesting, and um, yeah, I think like all of these topics are are kind of you could speak for hours on them, which is why why I love this stuff. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, uh, I saw you in, in 2019 at Sastock in Dublin. That was the last conference that I oh, physically cool. attended. <laughs> yeah, I saw you on stage. Are you getting back on stage now? Or are you looking forward to, to doing some speaking? Uh, so I'm speaking at a virtual conference in December, but I think next year I'm going to try to double down on like podcasting and writing. Um, mm-hmm. I, enjoy, I enjoy speaking. I might still speak, but um, I don't know. It takes a lot of time to create decks. 
Like I, yeah. I for the for the amount of time it takes me to create one deck, I could have probably done fifty podcasts. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm try, trying to be yeah, more I think, uh, my time. I, I agree with you. It's it's certainly what I'm investing heavily into because podcast material has so much repurposed value. Right, and uh, of course, there's there's all, there's nothing quite as unique as getting in front of an audience live with a great presentation. Um, that's that's golden, uh, but it just has less repurposed value as a right. podcast. And um, a lot of the great ideas can just flow out of a podcast and then lead you into a lot of other things. And just time time for preparation. Um, well, I, yeah. I prepare for hours and hours for this interview, but but usually <laughs> I can get it done uh, a lot faster. And so yeah. I'm just much more efficient at creating yeah. content. Yeah, yeah. The the average deck could like I've I've taken it down, but it used to take me like maybe thirty hours from like idea to to mm. creation and just making sure it was good. And yeah, that is. Uh, no, no. I I remember specifically in in, in twenty nineteen at Sastock, you present you show this this world of content marketing as you have the team, the hearts team, and the and yeah, the, the minds team. team. And I think that was I thought that was really cool. And we actually even adopted some of that. Um, in our agency. And we talked a lot about that with clients, uh, cool. but, but that requires, I, I do that, that really, you have to build a narrative. You have to really think about how you're going to keep that audience engaged for every single slide. And, um, I'm just, just pod- podcasting. You can get the same ideas out there, but it's a lot more efficient. Yep. I agree. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Kieran, I wish you all the best and um, I'm going to be very interested to follow along as your journey continues with HubSpot and, and you get into all these other cool things. Um, good luck with the with the angel investing and uh, hope, hope you come back sometime and we can do this again. Yeah, cool. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Sure. Thanks. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about SaaS growth marketing, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P, dot online. Have a great day.